Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got four members, four questions, and four answers for each question. Questions are generated by each of the squad members and run from the real to the ridiculous. So let's see who's on today's episode. My name is Mitch Conrad, and I'm a counseling graduate student. Hey, everyone. Jen Cook, counselor educator. Hi, Steph Martyr, doctoral candidate in counselor education and supervision. All right. So Mitch has got the first question. Sure. Um, I was thinking about this just because it's it's time for summer prac, you know. Uh, my question is, what would you say to a student who's about to see their first client? Well, I like to say lots of things to the students who are about to see their first client, but I would say primarily take a deep breath and relax because typically clients are more anxious than we are. Um, I know that we think it's all about us because it's our first client and that type of thing. Um, but usually clients are walking in just as anxious of how how is this person going to get me? How are they going to respond to what it is? that I share? And are they going to like me? All of those types of things. So I would say be yourself and take a deep breath because usually the client is more scared than you are. Um, even though it might not seem like that, uh, don't make it about you, make it about the client and just take a deep breath and be yourself because that's really who the client wants to connect with is to connect with you um, as a person. And then you'll bring your expertise later. So the, my first answer um, mirrors Jen's, which is breathe. That's first. Secondly, I use a little bit of humor. I mean, it ends up being humorous, but it's actually a serious question. And I ask them what they think that's going to come out of their mouth that's going to be harmful to clients. Like, what are you going to say? What do you what are you fearful that you will actually say? Are you going to say, you know what? Your life does sound horrible, you know, and and you know, you should reconsider everything. Um, if, and they're like, no, no, of course not. I'm like, of course not. You know, and if you have questions, obviously you have all the support, but I really just try to put in that perspective of, you know, you made it here. You probably have some decent judgment, you know, if not, you wouldn't, you know, we would be having a different conversation, but you know, just in reality, how likely is it that you're going to say something that will actually hurt clients and they usually can't come up with anything and off they go. All right. This gives me an opportunity to tell a story. I love this story. Um, I graduated as an undergraduate degree in psychology and, and uh, biology and was working as a volunteer at a crisis line that also had counseling in-house counseling. It's a place called Gemini house in Champaign, Illinois. Um, so they fired everybody at Gemini House. They hired a clinical psychologist, and he was looking for people to be counselors. And I thought, well, cool, I'm, I'll do that, and maybe I'll go on for my master's degree at some point. And the guy, it was a clinical psychologist, his name was Paul, and he said, you're going to see your first client tomorrow. And I said, great, do you have any advice? And he said these three things, and I've remembered them all these years. First thing he said was, Keep both feet planted firmly in midair, which is his way of saying, be 
you know, don't let the client ground you into some belief that they have that it's actual. This is a clinical psychologist, okay? Um, that is going to ground you into thinking that they're necessarily right or they're speaking truth. So keep both feet planted firmly in midair. The third thing he said was, is or the second thing he said was, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, acts like a duck, it's probably a duck. So also use your powers of observations and don't distrust them. If you have some intuition that tells you what's going on, that's probably what's going on. And the third thing he said was, if you screw up, I'll fire you. Um, that was my three pieces of advice. He didn't use the word screw up, though. Um, he used a different vernacular for that. Uh, that was all very helpful uh, for me, actually. It kind of scared me and uh, kept me in balance at the same time. But the thing that I, I think that I fear a lot of our students walk in to see their first client is that they, they forget how to be relatable. And that speaks to something that Jen said. It's sort of not just be yourself, but also kind of be good at relating to the client and engage them in a way that they feel comfortable with you, not just make sure that they do two thirds of the talking to your one third. Um, and keep, you know, those micro skills in mind, but don't let them drive you away from being relatable with the client. So that, that would be my piece of advice now. Although I think the three that I told you are also very helpful. I just have to add in the piece about the, about genuineness, about relatability, because, um, I think that I've shared before that my first master's training was as a clergy person. And of course, during that training, you learn how to preach. And we would have we would have classes on preaching and folks would get up and all of a sudden they had this different voice. Like we would be having a conversation, then they would get up there and they would say, glory be, you know, and they would have like this different persona. And we would talk about that as the chancel voice. And I, I always talk with students who are about to go on practicum about this kind of like transformation of changing your personality when you walk into the counseling room, like don't do that because number one, you got to sustain it. But number two, it's not genuinely who you are. I mean, if it is, then walk around and sound like that all the time, as opposed to walking in and you're like, I got to play counselor in this moment. It's like, no, you are counselor. Don't play it. So I had to get that piece in about genuineness because Oh, the when I hear students practice and I watch their tapes or I'm sorry, their recordings, I'm still living in the 90s, apparently, um, or I'm supervising them live and I hear their equivalent of the chancel voice come in. I just have that moment of, oh, please just be counselor rather than, you know, what you thought you saw on intervention or Dr. Phil or wherever you just got that from. Yeah, this uh, all great stuff, like all great stuff. Um, you know, this has definitely been something that's just been, been on my mind. Um, you know, since I've got friends who are, are going into prac right now and it's like, you know, I'm just trying to think of, you know, what do I, what do I say to them? You know, break a leg. Um, I think sometimes, uh, you know, I think it's maybe easy to focus on like ourselves that first time. And I'm not someone who's like been in, uh, track yet but I, I think it's sometimes easy to focus on ourselves um instead of focusing on the client who's really the reason that we're there um and 
you know, so I think there, I think everybody's just said some wonderful information. You know, I, I think I've got, I've certainly got some things to share with my friends now. All right. I have the next question for us this evening. What makes for a good textbook? Accuracy, I think, is first and foremost. And I'm saying that a little tongue in cheek, but also there's, you know, some real big uh, mistakes that I've come across. One in particular that sticks out to me, but I know that there are like many. But the one that is in my mind is reading a multicultural textbook and it's talking in the in the Jewish Jewish section, um, the the paragraph and a half for Jewish Americans. And it calls it, it was confusing pogroms with shtetl. So it was saying pogroms were little communities where Jews would live. And it's like, no, pogroms were like bloody massacres that would like go through the streets and um, it's that's a big difference. It's it's not, and so so I do look for that number one is just, I mean, to really have like the big definitions of facts straight, um, you know. So I'll leave it at that because there's a lot of other stuff too, but um, maybe that'll be covered. That's my big thing though. Get the facts right. Um, I. The first thing I do is uh, evaluate a textbook is it's something I want to read um, because I'm going to have to read it. And there are textbooks I don't want to read. Uh, but really, I'm looking at inexpensive, uh, readily available for students in that way, because I'm going to ask them to spend money. They are probably scrounging up to try and get. So I try to keep books under total books under 100 bucks for a semester. It needs to be practical. Is does every chapter have meaning? Uh, I'm I'm looking at a textbook now that has 24 chapters, and there's no way I'm gonna force students to read 24 chapters on all these different esoteric things when this is a foundational course. So I'm really looking for some good basic foundational stuff so every chapter should have meaning and practical in the sense that it converts the idea into action for the student because that's what the student's interested in and then i have this 10-year sort of way to evaluate it is this a book that uh as a student i would want to keep and have on my bookshelf for 10 years as a way to as a reference or as a resource i might not be doing a lot of testing but if i need to find something quickly on testing. Is this the textbook that I'm going to pull off my bookshelf to to go back and look at to get a starting kind of a place with it? So those are the kind of, I try to find those. I'm not always successful in finding those, but textbook uh, publishers, hey, there's some ideas for you. I'm, I am surprised at things that get published as textbooks these days. Because it's like, okay, so where am I going to use this? And why am I going to ask students to pay another 150 bucks for this book on top of the foundational stuff I need to teach them anyways? And I certainly appreciate as someone who is purchasing some textbooks right now, I certainly appreciate the concerns about their pricing, their prices. Um, 
something that I was thinking about was uh, trying to like compare it to to teaching almost was I, I really like books that try to um, that talk with you to collaborate in the learning as opposed to talk at you. And it's the same with professors for me. Um, I, I've always found that the good ones are interested in collaborating. Um, the books are this kind of the same way, interested in collaborative learning. They do ask a lot about reflections and maybe that's, you know, part of the, part of the idea of counseling is that we are asked, you know, to reflect a lot, at least in, in my program. And, um, you know, I, I think that's, it's something that's always been really helpful for, to me is, is feeling like the person in the textbook is like on my side and like has good information that we can talk about instead of like, no, you need to believe these specific things. Um, so I think tone is, is really important there. Mm -hmm. This is all, these are all wonderful things. Um, I think you all know that I'm writing a textbook right now, um, with Maddie Clark and we're, we're pretty decent ways through it. And a lot of the things that y'all are speaking about, we're, we're attending to, um, price was one of the things that, you know, we both researched social class and socioeconomic status. So that was something that was a priority to us. Um, you know, a little news flash to y'all out there. You don't make a lot of money writing a textbook. So guess what? Like to lower the price of the, of the textbook by 20 bucks is not changing my financial future, you know? So I think that there, there are things that you can do as authors of textbooks and, you know, keeping the price low is one of them. Um, Steph, when you mentioned accuracy, that really resonated with me because I, I used to use an intro to counseling textbook that I loved, but there was a table in there about counselors in different states who weren't allowed to diagnose. And it said that in Wisconsin, that counselors are not allowed to diagnose which is a load of crap. And I wrote the textbook authors. I said, look, this isn't true. When you update the textbook, you've got to make sure this get cha gets changed. It did not. I was so frustrated because I was like, I love this textbook, but every time I'd assign the chapter, I'd have to be like, look, y'all, I know it's going to say that you're not allowed to diagnose by law in this state. And that's not true. You can't. Mm. And so um, accuracy really is a big thing. Um, and for me, that conversationality, that's something that I've been really focused on, um, especially with the chapters that I'm that I'm a primary writer for, because I'm not a primary writer for all of the chapters. But that idea that we're connecting together, um, it's a multicultural textbook. So this idea that we're going on a journey together, that we're going to have different ways of thinking about things, but that our approaches can have similar threads to them. So that's been an important piece to me, especially given kind of the cultural milieu in which we're living with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how we understand people who are different from us, and how we understand privilege and marginalization and those different types of concepts. I don't think getting in a big fat fight with people does any good most of the time. Um, it just leaves both parties bloody. Um, and at the end of the day, we want to be coming together rather than separating. So um, I appreciate y'all's input because um, this is this is con is a continual process for me. I've never written a textbook before, um, and neither has my partner that we're writing together that I'm writing with. And so, um, continuing to understand better, you know, what do people want and what makes it accessible, and that has a lot of definitions. Um, but trying to understand better what people want. So, thank y'all. That was fun. <clears throat> uh so I'm going to switch directions and ask, have you ever used any healthcare techniques or services that seem to be snake oil, but they actually worked? 
Um, I went through what I call my kooks and spooks phase uh, back when I was in my doctoral program or before my doctoral program where, you know, it included things like crystals and stones and tarot and this and sweat lodges. Now, frankly, the sweat lodges were great. The sweats were great. But um, there's all that other mysticism stuff that that kind of fell short for me. So I've been a bit of a skeptic since then. However, um, I've developed some neuropathy related to uh, my diabetes, and it it got incredibly painful. And um, my chiropractor told me, well, I've got this thing that, and my doctor said, oh, there's nothing that cures it. Um, and I, uh, my chiropractor said, well, you've got some things that we're doing here. Would you like to do it? And it was expensive. It was really horrendously expensive. But it's a combination of stim um, and electronic stimulation and um, UV light that, uh, and also some supplement. Um, and frankly, I stayed on a pretty strict schedule of both of those, and the neuropathy dissipated to a degree. Now, of course, I stopped doing it. And things have come back to to a degree. Um, but, you know, it was the thing that really surprised me. And um, it was expensive, uh, not available for a lot of folks, but I, I was willing to try it and spend money on it. And it worked. And I still have the still have the machines and all of the lights and stuff like here so I can start it back up um, if I want to get back into the regime. So, yeah. Yeah, this question is really interesting to me because I've always wondered, um, you know, sometimes this a lot of things are like advertised as miracle cures and stuff like that. And I, I do wonder if they were just they tempered their expectations um, with how they advertise uh, things that, you know, we would consider snake oil uh, if, if things would if they get any more sales, maybe they get less. Um one of the things that I was really apprehensive about for a long time, because, uh, you know, in a way I did consider it not that big of a deal was vitamin D supplements. And it sounds pretty simple. And I, I think there's like certainly some, certainly some evidence for them, but it didn't convince me. And I was like, I'm not trying vitamin D supplements. Like I'm also, I'll just go out in the sun and be fine. And then I got, you know, a test from my doctor that said, your, your vitamin D levels are critically low. We got to get you on this stuff. I'm like, okay, fine. And I'm sure there's other reasons that it contributed to just feeling like me feeling a lot better, you know, as my levels went up. But if, if someone else out there isn't uh, buying into the vitamin D hype, like I certainly was not, you might be interested in giving it a go. Um I feel like it's helped me out at least a little bit. Oh, for sure. Vitamin D has like changed my life. Um, living in the dark for the past, I don't know, however many years it's been at this point, over a decade. Uh, yeah, totally changed my life. But I don't even know where to start with this question. Um, I will, because I moved to Colorado in my early 20s. So my world kind of got blown open. And I wouldn't say it was about um, snake oil, so to speak, but it was things that were outside of my understanding and outside of my knowledge. So things like 
rolfing, Reiki, um, family constellation work, um, acupuncture, therapeutic massage. Like, I mean, I could make a whole hell of a long list around this stuff. Um, some things you'd be like, what in hell is that? But I'm telling you, like, I have seen such benefit and difference from those types of treatments for me. Um, so I were this is the podcast. So, but my colleagues here may have seen that I'm I'm wearing a wrist brace right now. I have a very old injury and packing up to move has gotten it irritated. When we get off tonight, I will be soaking at Nepsen. I will be taking my tinctures of Arnica um, and I will be using my Arnica cream. And in the morning, I know I'm going to wake up and feel fine um, because this is something that I practice on a regular basis in terms of also, you know, doing massage on it, like massage in addition. So, you know, it's interesting to me that when people, I, I don't believe in miracle cures, but I do believe in using our energies to work for our good. And that was something that I never really understood or knew people did or believed in. It was not something that was part of my culture growing up, um, but it was something that I was introduced to pretty quickly when I when I moved to Colorado. And an entire new world was open to me once that happened. And so now when people say, oh, you do that? And I'm like, I surely do. And you mm. might find some benefit from it. It might not be for you, but it is for me. So, you know, you can put your judgment aside, but or not, it's not going to change me. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is interesting. And I, I this is um, cool to hear about what people say. I think the vitamin, I think the vitamin D is, um, that's something that actually also has helped me. So we, we are the vitamin D committee at the moment. Um, <laughs> So everybody out there, we are not medical professionals. We just enjoy <laughs> vitamin D for ourselves. It's been helpful. So um, with that, the reason why this question came up for me is because I have a long history, too, of, of back injuries and neck injuries and pain, chronic pain. And um, my lower back, uh, I've gotten into some good habits and others that I've kind of uh, stopped doing, like the cryo all the cryotherapy, you know, the PT was just like, um, stop adding stuff to your routine, start taking things back because they can get into each other's way. So I stopped the cryogenic uh, therapy, which was good because it was really, really cold. Um, mm. You know, it's like you kind of enjoy it. But then I'm like, I, I don't enjoy it. I can tolerate it, but that doesn't make it enjoyable. And I didn't. It's not like I felt great um, afterwards. But recently I was like, OK, I saw this chiropractor because I oh. Sorry. What happened was a week and a half ago is I got my first massage since COVID. And, you know, it was so necessary. I was in South Carolina. I had been driving. I've been chasing a toddler around on the beach and um, I was needing more medication. And I finally got a massage and this person was wonderful. And it was actually an Arnica and hot towel massage. And it, it was just like, OK, so I wanted to look up, get something more local when I got back home. And get back into that. I came across this chiropractor and <clears throat> they have this machine and it's called the DRX 9000. And right, it's like, it makes me feel silly just saying it. And it's, it, it's a traction. It's not, it's traction. It's a spinal decompression thing. Um, but they hook you up. Is that what you were on? That's okay. 
Okay. See, and I was I was going to ask if that's what it was. Yeah. Um, it's it also is a sentient being. So it's the, <laughs> right. you say it's a DRX nine thousand. Um, like, the ten thousand is made out of liquid metal. <laughs> and it can form to your body exactly. Yes. Um, <laughs> Got to try this thing. I was going <laughs> to. No joke. I might need to date this thing. <laughs> and you're right. And you know, ah, so I'm considering it. You know, hearing what Marty had to say that it at least provided some relief and it was helpful. Um, that's kind of that's interesting. That's what I was I was thinking about because I'm just like I don't want to go into something else that's you know something fancy and it's all space age and they hook you up to this whole yeah I mean Marty's spot on with that because it's just this whole panel it's in it vibrates I don't know but I'm very curious about it and I really want to try it and yes you have to get a big package but if it takes the pain away mm. you know I'm a sucker for that I I am they see me coming a mile away I, I I told them I was in a room by myself with the door open and I shouted out if it could cook, I would put a ring on it um, and <laughs> and then asked for a cigarette after the experience. <laughs> well, that's it. Darn it. I'm sold. Sign me up. I'm going to go this week. <laughs> I, I have, I think, the last question, and it's not a pleasant question, but it's a very immediate question for me. So I'm curious about people's thoughts on it. Uh, we had a colleague, Jason McLaughlin, who died suddenly um, in our program. And I've uh, I've been here for 23 years. Jason was here effectively for 23 years, too. Um, and we've had a couple of faculty members pass on. Jason was probably not uh, as connected to, well, at least to one of them, he was very much connected to Betsy um, about five years ago, six years ago. Um, and then when I first got there, someone died of cancer um, and and Betsy essentially succumbed to cancer. So it was one of these processes that you can prepare for emotionally, but Jason died suddenly. So my question is, how do you deal with death in the workplace? Yeah, this question has obviously a lot of weight to it. And, you know, I had done some thinking about it before. Uh, I have been very fortunate to not have anyone in my life who I've been closely connected to pass away, um, which is pretty lucky. I feel very fortunate. I'm 34 years old and none of that has happened. I think my first kind of reaction to this was, I think it's okay not to know what to do um, and to give ourselves a little bit of grace there to understand that like, like that situation, Marty, it just sounds tough, you know, to know someone for, for that long and work with someone for that long and then to have it happen. So suddenly I, I think that, um, you know, it's some, sometimes like, I, I think it's okay to just like, when we don't know what to do with, with something like that. And, you know, also in the, in the spirit of grace as well, just kind of like, uh, you know, it's, it's okay to, to not be okay, um, with what's going on at, at least. And I'm not sure how helpful that, that may be to anybody, but I, I, that's, I think, I think that's what I've been thinking about in my two cents. So. 
Uh, personally, I've dealt with a lot of deaths. Um, I'm kind of the opposite of you, Mitch. By the time I was 18, 13 people who were close to me had died. So death is something that I've I've spent a lot of time around and and being with and sitting with. And I think when it comes to the workplace, it's a really it's a very different environment, especially in counselor ed, because we all um, we're all very relational with one another, um, and we develop a lot of relationships across the profession. And I would say for me, when I learned about Jason's death and I did not really know him, um, I thought, my goodness, we have, we have grieved so much as a community in the last few years in terms of so many of our colleagues, um, passing away during this time period. And so I think that it's not, it's not like when you're an investment banker, um, our jobs are very different. We're very, excuse me, connectional with one another. And so I think that we have to have space for that. But I think we also have space, have to have space to say, we're ready to start doing our jobs again, too. Um, one of the things that stands out to me of a death I experienced was um, the church where I did my internship when I was in seminary. Um, right after I had graduated and went on to serve my first church, um, the assistant or associate pastor um, and his wife were involved in a murder-suicide. And... I had just left that environment and wasn't, I wasn't working there anymore, but um, I ended up going back and kind of, and helping the congregation during that time because I knew the people, but I also was a little bit removed from the time. And what I, what I realized through those types of situations that it's okay to ask for help from the outside to say, you know what, I can't take on this class right now because that was Jason's class and it feels too close. Let's farm that out to an adjunct right now. Or to be able to say like, you know, you know what, I actually want to take that class because I want to honor Jason through it, you know, to be able to make those choices and to validate each person in the midst of that, because, you know, that's something that we know how to do, but also to say, it's okay if we don't know what to do and it's okay to screw it up and to get at each other, get on each other's nerves and to have it out with each other. Um, I think that it's okay to have those normal emotions and to not know what to do and to just be present for it and to know at the end of it, we can all be bygones, you know, go back to the Allie McBeal days and just say bygones. And we were under a lot of stress and it was a very hard time because grief begets grief, you know? So any grief that you have in the past, you know, it can stir that up, especially off-time death. And I find off-time deaths to be the most challenging um, this time of year, particularly for me, um, my father died on, in an on t- in an off time death, in my opinion, um, of a heart attack at the age of fifty five. Um, that anniversary is coming up for me, and I still try to make sense of that thirty five years later, more than that, uh, thirty eight years later this year. Um, of what it, what with these on off time deaths, they don't you can't comprehend it, and I think it's okay, sort of like what Mitch was saying to let yourself not comprehend it and to not need to figure it out. And then when you need to figure it out again, to be with that process. Um, I don't know this. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of heady about it right now. I think because I I can feel that I could be really emotional about it. And um, I think I'm staying in the knowledge base um, because that's my coping, coping mechanism around these types of things. So Use what works for you, I guess, is is at the end of the day, um, and to and to allow each other to to do what works for them too. Yeah, I mean, this is hard. Also, just being a student of this is hard too. Being a student of Dr. McLaughlin's um, for 
a long time. I mean, he was there when I started. And so it's 10 years later. Um, Now, at the same time, you know, thinking we also had a, a loss at our workplace, at our practice, not that long ago um, as well. And what I was realizing is that with where I am either in the program, in the doctoral program, or um, with work where I'm not into the office very much anymore, you know, it's a little odd because I'm so removed from the physical environment and interacting with these people or even just seeing them in the hall that it's, it's probably very surreal, um, you know, or it doesn't hit quite the same way. And I was trying better to even be supportive to maybe some of my friends who had closer relationship, more recent uh, closeness um, as far as that, uh, as far as Dr. McLaughlin goes. Um, but what really, it was hard for me to be emotional, but then uh, reading some things that actually Marty wrote um, that that brought it up. It made it very personal. Um, you sent it out to everyone. It's not like uh, it, it it was private words necessarily, but for the obituary um, and and what you wrote, it, it just kind of made it very real and in my face. So I think it, it brought that personal feeling back, and it, you, I could finally have some feelings about it. Um, so it was kind of nice, but at the same time, it's hits differently because it doesn't feel very different. It's just the knowledge is there, but you always thought on the other side, though, too, that you think after all of that, where I haven't been on campus, when I'd be on campus, they'd be there again. So it's that's where it's going to really be weird, I think, too. It, um, it was the same thing uh, in the past. OK. Yeah, I had to discover for myself what the process was going to be for me this week through the experience, because. I was a conduit from the faculty to um, to uh, Deborah, his surviving spouse. And so she was, we weren't even talking on the phone. We were just messaging. And that's how we communicated all week long. So I kind of went from my, had to switch back and forth from the logical side of my head to the emotional side of my head. And, you know, uh, you know, Jen talked about that in sense of it's okay to just get back to work. And some of that was getting back to work. And the other part was, okay, I need to do, deal with the emotional aspect, help put together a uh, an obituary with some other faculty and with, with Deborah, because she wasn't going to, she asked us to initiate it. So that's what we did. And then helping deal with the university stuff, helping to find a place for a memorial service, uh, to switching back to, I've got to respond to these emails. Um, to saying, forget it, I'm going out to a movie with my son for the afternoon. Because as you know, on Circular Firing Squad Bingo, uh, one of the answers is Marty goes to movies um, to escape. Um, and so he and I went and saw a smash him up um, and then finished with that and came back and was able to get back to the, the two sides of my head uh, through the day. So it's you know, it wasn't until maybe three or four days after his passing, I realized that my father was a sudden, unexpected passing, too, and looked at my recovery from that 
and how many years it took and eventually some work through therapy to get through that. So I don't think I'm going to need to work through therapy with it with Jason, but it, I didn't, I hadn't had any of those unexpected sudden uh, deaths that uh, Jen mentioned about. And since my dad, so uh, I've got the final shot question a little bit, kind of got to get a little bit up on this. Um, would you rather be called clever or driven? I have wanted this all my life to be considered even half clever. Um, I feel like clever is maybe something that you like, I, I don't know if people are born with it. I've always been really impressed and maybe a bit, maybe a bit jealous about people who have uh, like a real quick wit, you know, like I don't have a slow wit. I have no wit. Like it is bad. And I really, you know, I just look at those people who have, you know, they can just go right back with you back and forth, just joking around and talk. And it's crazy. And I really, I really want that. I'd love to be driven too, but I'd give anything to be clever. Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I want to say both. I mean, I know this happens every single time. I mean, well, you know, happy day. You've missed me on the show and I'm going to come back and say both. But if I had to choose one, I think I'm clever. I mean, I don't know if I have wit, but I do think I'm clever. Um, I'm maybe crafty. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I don't think I'm probably driven at all. So. <laughs> I guess I have to be clever because I'm not driven. <laughs> oh, we we had to have one of these two qualities. Oh, I don't have. Uh, gosh, I definitely. I'm definitely not I clever. We just were wishing. Oh. Oh, okay. We would want people to call us, like even if we. You. Yes. What What would be the term if we combined clever and witty? <laughs> we'll just what leave it. Ever. We'll let the listeners um, write in and decide. Um. So my. But yes, definitely clever, because if you're clever, you can choose to drive yourself more. But if you're driven, you might just be driven doing stupid stuff all the time. Uh, I really would like to say clever. I think more people see me because of my work habits as being driven. That's unfortunate uh, because I, I I really, as you had said, I, I think you can be driven if you're Clever. Actually, I don't think this is a good dialectic. I think you can be both, Jen. So you've got you've got that out. You can't be one or the other, I guess. But the question is, would you rather be seen or called as clever or driven? And it's got to be clever. Well, look for some of these clever characters. Thanks to the firing squad, uh, Jen, Stephanie, and No Wit Mitch. Uh, and uh, Look for these characters on their podcasts on the podtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Our theme music is from Menage a Quad, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim.